0: Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically.
1: Is that recording, Mayor Beth? Yes.
0: Are you listening to this too? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because he's doing it. I mean, it's all his fault. Welcome, everyone, to
2: Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times. And I am speaking first today because my podcast co-host, Manuela Tobias, from Matters, is on vacation. So we have a special guest host for this fortnight.
1: That'd be me, Ben Areskes. I'm a colleague of Liam's. I uh, write about housing and homelessness here in Los Angeles, a little bit of local politics as well, and I'm just psyched to be invited on.
2: Well, this is actually Ben's second appearance on Gimme Shelter. As I know, he's such a longtime fan and friend of the pod that he has pined for a more official role. So congrats again, Ben, for being here today. Again,
1: for being with us today. I'm honored to be here. I mean, I will relay that I nearly drove off the road. I was told (laughs) to pull over when you called to inform me the first time I was on this podcast. And yes, just glad to be in the mix and glad to have a more official title and happy that Manuela is off celebrating Argentina's win in the World Cup. Right, still doing that indeed, yes. Presumably and, still drunk from celebrating.
2: <laughs> and you know, it's great that Ben is here because Ben, your reporting focuses on LA. You've covered the recent mayoral election here, won by former Democratic Congresswoman Karen Bass,
1: who is now in her first few weeks in office. I did, yeah, spent the last year doing that. And today on this episode, we'll be talking about Mayor Bass's housing and homelessness plans. And also the implications of a new tax increase that Angelinos also approved on the November ballot. It's something I've written a lot about. The measure was called United to House LA, and it adds a tax on property sales over $5 million. It's expected to raise as much as $1.1 billion a year. And the money is dedicated towards homeless services and housing construction. It's a huge deal. It's the first time we have this revenue stream just for these issues, and people are Obviously very excited about it. So we have a lot to talk about here. And as always on Gimme
2: Shelter, we have the perfect guest. Who is it, Ben?
1: We always get the goods. And I'm honored to have a role in that. It's Mayor Bass herself. Wow. Uh, I'm glad that you pulled me in. And I met the moment, to quote Gavin (laughs) Newsom. Yes. Uh, Ben delivered with another big get for the Gimme Shelter
2: podcast. So you'll hear the new mayor's takes on all these issues in the second half of our show. But first. Yes, this is something, of course, we would never skip no matter who was on Gimme Shelter What is it, Ben?
1: My favorite part of the show. It's the avocado of the fortnight.
2: That's right. It's our look at the most wild, madcap, wacko housing story in California in recent weeks.
1: Where are we going for this fortnight's avocado, Liam?
2: We're headed to the Bay Area suburb of Lafayette, where some folks have been hoisted by their own petard, as they say, by a new court ruling.
1: I'm intrigued. Tell me more.
2: Well, Lafayette is a suburban bedroom community in Contra Costa County that borders Walnut Creek. A developer proposed building a 315-unit apartment complex in town, and now here we are a decade later. You know, the script
1: says to laugh,
2: but I'm just going to say okay. (laughs) Great, thanks. (laughs) So
1: let me take you
2: through what's happened in Lafayette over the past decade. So after negotiations with neighborhood groups who believed the project was too big for Lafayette's, quote, semi-rural character, the developer in the city made a deal to downsize the project to 44 homes.
1: That's a lot smaller than 315.
2: But it was not small enough for neighborhood group Save Lafayette, which collected signatures for referendum to overturn the 44-home project. They won throwing the project out in 2018.
1: I believe it's 2023 now, so that's quite a long time ago.
2: It is, yeah. And it turns out there was another lawsuit in the situation filed by one of the founders of the Yes in My Backyard, or YIMBY movement, a woman named Sonia Trauss. Sonia argued that Lafayette's downzoning of the project violated state housing laws, and her suit pushed for the approval of the original 315-unit project. In the wake of that lawsuit and potential penalties costing the city millions of dollars, the developer resubmitted the apartment complex proposal and the city approved that in 2020. I can't
1: imagine the Save Lafayette folks were pleased with this. They were not, no. But it's 2023. That was a few years ago. What happened since then? Well, as you
2: surmised, Save Lafayette was none too pleased with these circumstances. So they filed a lawsuit saying that the original project's environmental approvals had expired and were no longer any good. And I hope we're closer to the present day. We're getting very close, yes. So Save Lafayette lost their case the beginning of last year. Then they appealed, of course, as you might expect. And recently, a court of appeals affirmed that decision, appearing to clear the way
1: for construction of the apartment project to begin. I see. So you're saying that had the group that hated the 315-unit project been okay with 44 homes on the site, then we would have stopped talking about this a long ago. But because they fought back against the 44 homes, it now looks like the 315-unit complex is going to be built? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Hoisted by one's own petard,
2: indeed. Indeed. But let's not forget the length of time all this has been going on. As a San Jose Mercury News noted in its coverage of this circumstances last year, this dispute in Lafayette has been around for longer than 5% of the city's 25,000 residents have been alive. That's a lot of residents. And a note, this issue is highlighted in Golden Gates, the housing book written by Friend of the Pod and former pod guest, uh, New
1: York Times reporter Connor Doherty, if you'd like to learn more. I would. And, and again, everyone should go read Connor's book. But let's get to why I'm here, because that's obviously what matters most.
2: Yes, indeed. So to our main topic of the day, which is the state of housing and homelessness in Los Angeles, what the new mayor wants to do about these problems, and how this new billion-dollar tax is going to change things. So Ben, you covered the mayoral campaign and have written about this tax as as we've discussed. So consider what we're about to do now, a pre-interview with you before we interview the mayor. I love to be
1: interviewed, so let's do
2: it. So take us first through sort of how central the city's housing affordability and homelessness issues were to this mayoral campaign.
1: These numbers are likely well known to your listeners, but let's repeat them anyway. There are nearly 40,000 homeless people in the city According to the latest count, this is a human catastrophe, and it's one that animated this campaign. Bass said over and over that it's what prompted her to run. Remember, this is a woman who served in Congress, had a very good gig, but she said she wanted to, quote, come home and help fix the ills of the city. It was also what animated her opponent's campaign, and he had hoped that the anger over tents on the sidewalk would propel him to victory. And sort of tarred Bass as the incumbent, who'd be more of the same. That obviously didn't work. She won by nearly ten points. But the anger over homelessness, every poll, every conversation you have in the city shows this. And it's something that Bass's focus has been on since she took the oath of office. So tried to tar her as an
2: incumbent wasn't the incumbent, that was Eric Garcetti who turned out of office. And it was not like he didn't try to do anything or didn't propose to do anything about homelessness. So What on the trail did Mayor Bass say she was going to do about this, and how was that going to be different than what Garcetti was doing?
1: So during the campaign, you know, we pushed her hard on the subject. We sat with her for a long time, and she basically described to us a plan where she would try to house about 17,000 people in her first year. She was really focused on trying to wring as much as possible out of the current system that exists, i.e., the various different interventions, housing methods that we already have. And that also came with a bit of expanding of interim and permanent housing. This stood in stark contrast to her opponent, Rick Russo, who was all about building 30,000 new things. It was a variety, like a mix of tiny homes, buying buildings. But she was very much like, what do we have? Let's make it better. And now that she's in office, we're starting to see that kind of come to fruition. She's focused on the city's most problematic encampments a program called Inside Safe. This was on top of declaring a state of emergency. She did that on her first day in office. It had to be approved by the city council. And that state of emergency had both like a sort of practical and a political dimension to it. So like what? In the sense that she was saying from the get-go, this is going to be the thing I focus on the most. She was focusing the city's attention on the issue that made her run. And she was also saying this is the most important thing. That was the political. The practical was it consolidated a lot of the powers that normally need to run through the city council and get approvals for things, thinking about the siting of shelters, thinking about how money is dispersed. She was saying, we're going to do all of that in the mayor's office. If we need money to rent hotel rooms for a certain encampment, we're going to decide to do that. We're going to try to sort of make the process of helping people get indoors less cumbersome. That was a big idea that we've heard from her team. And we were starting to see that, you know, there've only been a few of these inside safe encampment programs. They've resembled a lot of the encampment to home programs we saw in the end of Garcetti's years in big locales like Venice and Echo Park, where they would rent a bunch of hotel rooms, set a moment where they were going to clear that place. So she's trying to take the best practices of that and sort of do it citywide. It's slow going at this point, but she's definitely staked a lot of political capital and focused a lot of her attention on this subject.
2: So I noticed there's a lot of focus on homelessness, but it seemed like a lot less during the campaign on broader housing issues. Was Is that right?
1: I would say yes, but it's clear Street homelessness and getting people indoors quickly has been her focus. That's also the focus of an Angelino walking the streets. So she's very attuned to that and it goes to the politics of this moment. But the emergency declaration does have the effect in certain respects, of speeding up the entitlement process for both interim and permanent housing construction. She has named sort of person... She didn't use the word czar. I know how much <laughs> that matters to you. Uh-huh. A woman named Mercedes Marquez is sort of the head of Homeless and Housing Solutions, a person who reports directly to her. Again, empowering someone who's accountable to think about all of these issues because they are interconnected. And she's really leaning into city officials to speed up that process. There have been any number of sort of executive orders that have sort of said, bring me your best plans, make the entitlement process work faster. And I will say with all of this, she also has a pot of cash that will help her hasten and expand the supply of supportive housing along with rental assistance. I'm sure we'll get into that later.
2: So there were a couple of things that stuck out to me as I watched the campaign and then also in the mayor's first few weeks in office. My colleague Brittany Mahi and I published a lengthy investigation in the fall on the history of housing overcrowding in Los Angeles Contrary to public perception as this sort of sprawly spread out place for all, LA has had the highest overcrowding rate, which is defined as homes or apartments with more than one person per room among all the large counties in the country going back three decades. This has lots of implications, most notably recently during the COVID-19 pandemic where we found that. The neighborhoods in L.A. with the most overcrowded homes like Pico Union near downtown or some communities in South L.A. had some of the highest COVID death rates. By the way, we go
1: over all this in a prior episode of Give Me Shelter that you can find. I have heard the same thing from the mayor, and and I think she seemed very affected by this issue. It kind of speaks to her background in community development in South L.A., and, and I wonder if you thought it seemed to affect her as well. Yeah, so in interviews with us
2: and in many of her significant speeches, including during her inauguration, she referenced LA's overcrowding problems and pledged to address them. Well, like, what's the substance of that? How is she going to do that? Right. So she told us that she wants affordable housing built in every neighborhood in the city, a contrast from some of the city's history where largely white and wealthier neighborhoods have long been insulated from those sorts of developments.
1: But no surprise, there's a third rail she doesn't want to touch, right?
2: Right. And so in our conversations and on the trail, Bass has said that she doesn't want neighborhood zone for single family homes to change that much. Granted, new state laws have allowed duplexes and casitas and ADUs in most of those areas. But Bass said neighborhoods themselves should choose where the affordable housing should go and not have it in single family home areas if they have a viable alternative like in commercial areas.
1: Yeah, there's this real fine line she's always walking with, you know, insisting something needs to change, but also having some deference to the neighborhoods themselves.
2: And so I'm surprised, though, that there were not a lot of other housing issues that seemed to come up. Was there much conversation about, like, rent control or the city's emergency eviction rules? or about the process for approving housing? Did any of those things get a lot of discussion during the campaign?
1: So during the campaign, she spoke a lot about what she described as the worrying prospect of the eviction moratorium ending and creating a big inflow into homelessness. She said uh-huh. at various points, she'd like to see it extended, but it was anything but specific on this front. I, you know, I'd add she, right. she also talked about the need to help support Landlords and particularly like smaller landlords. Similarly, with affordable housing, her big line was that affordable housing projects shouldn't jump to the front of the line. They need a separate line when it comes to getting permits and other entitlements approved. Again, a very nice, pithy statement. But again, I would say, in all seriousness, her executive orders since taking office have focused on this question, sort of challenging her general managers, of which you know there are many who touch the kind of sighting of housing in the city. She really wants them to be working faster. She doesn't want them to be waiting for one review to end, for the next one to begin. She's putting deadlines that are much shorter and just challenging them to think more creatively. But just to emphasize
2: here, she was talking only about specifically low-income housing, right, with all these permit and processing changes? Yeah. So how about for, like, the
1: rest of housing? There's definitely been less talk on this front. She has insisted that new housing can't be only built in poor neighborhoods, as you said. And she's noted these communities are already overcrowded. Uh And again, let's just underscore the need in this city or in this county. You know, the California Housing Partnership has found that in the county, nearly half a million households don't have access to an affordable home. So her push on affordable housing has been well publicized, but she's going to need to do more and push for more building at every level of affordability. And again, I think it'll be fun to talk to her and, and ask her more about this.
2: So before we jump into the interview with the mayor, let's finish up with a discussion of the new tax, which is going to figure in here in a large way. Tell us a little more about what it is.
1: Yeah, so this is a big deal. It was called United to House LA. It was something that the voters had on the ballot. It's a new document transfer tax, meaning the levy hits at the point of sale. It would impose an additional tax on commercial and residential property sales that exceed $5 million. So as an example, a $5 million sale would generate a $200,000 tax bill. And city and analysts have found it raised, you know, between $600 million $1.1 billion a year. Wow, okay, that is certainly
2: a lot of money and a lot of new money for the city. How did this come about?
1: A coalition of social justice nonprofit groups of various stripes ranging from, you know, tenant defense to community advocates in neighborhoods teamed up with uh, any number of different unions, the, the building and trades in particular. And they all came together, they collected signatures and they got this on the ballot. And their view was that a continuing revenue stream not just some one-off thing that sunsetted, but money forever was essential to push forward the gains that have already been made with other taxes and other housing pushes in this city. And their view was that we can't make any gains if the money disappears after a certain amount of time.
2: And voters uh, supported this decently robustly?
1: I would say so. A a reminder, something you've written about, Liam, a lot. In the past, a lot of these taxes needed two-thirds. This one only needed a half because they went to the voters, they got the signatures, that was a big deal. They got 58%. So it wasn't like it just passed. That's a pretty healthy majority in my mind. So what can this money be used for? And have there been any formal
2: plans already put forward?
1: So it's clear that there was a lot of lessons learned from previous efforts to fund housing in the city. So the money is very prescribed in the sense that there are very delineated buckets for how it can be spent. About thirty percent of the proceeds go to funding emergency rent subsidies. There's money for direct payments to seniors and disabled people who are at risk of becoming homeless, and tenants' rights to counsel in eviction proceedings. Then there's roughly a quarter of the tax proceeds that will go to alternate modes of construction and the purchase of existing buildings
2: for affordable housing. Like to build for, yes, for affordable, for affordable
1: housing. housing, money that could be used for master leasing, so you could rent a whole building for a very long period of time with an eye uh-huh. towards creating a supply of housing for very at-risk people that was easy to get people into that housing. That's always been a big frustration for social services organizations in this space. And then there's money that is also sort of in that traditional financing model where you're kind of buying tax credits and using them to finance the building of brand new buildings. But that's like far less emphasized than in efforts past, I would say. So in terms of formal plans, there aren't that many yet. There's a whole bureaucracy that has to be stood up to kind of manage this and implement it. But we've already started to see Bass reference the measure as she directs departments to plan to address the homelessness crisis, uh, how to use the money. They're clearly chomping at the bit and very excited about the prospect of it. So, what are some potential concerns and downsides
2: about the tax? We published a story that says there's already some activity about trying to get around it, and I know some people are bothered by the fact that there's no tax for property sales less than five million, but kicks in at four percent for those at five million. So, you know, should we expect to see a lot of sales for four point nine
1: nine nine
2: nine nine million? That's a good question, and one
1: that. I heard a lot about as I was reporting about this and, and, and heard frustration in some corners that the tax sort of actually should have started at a higher level given this cost to live in L.A. that yeah. $5 million is a lot. Like, don't get me wrong. There are very much people who will be impacted about this and will not be able to buy houses at that level. But then there was also a frustration that it wasn't sort of more progressive, that it did create this kind of cliff. Yeah. And, you know, our colleague Jack Fleming, uh, you mentioned, had a nice article about the ways that our people are scheming to avoid being hit with this levy. Uh, You know, he described one group of homeowners who are looking into splitting up their properties into smaller parcels with Uh different ownership entities so they can avoid this tax altogether. I'd point one other thing out right now. The Howard Jarvis Association and the Apartments Association of L.A., Uh they've already sued Trying to prevent this tax from going into effect. So there's gonna be a lot of sort of legal chickenry going on in this space. I think we'll be doing a lot of reporting and writing about just like as that case winds its way through court, will they be allowed to collect the tax? Will they be allowed to disperse the tax? It's anything but certain that this is gonna go smoothly. And then what about
2: the effects on overall housing supply? Are there any concerns that that it might chill growth?
1: Definitely. And a couple of just interesting data points very quickly. 2019, if you applied this. Tax to the sales in that year, about half of the sales would have been of commercial properties. About huh. 27% would have been of residential or multifamily. What's interesting about that is this idea that it like might dampen development. We have talked about, and you know, we need all the development we can get at all levels. And so the idea there is like, let's say you buy a property, you buy a piece of land or buy a place with a kind of beat-down house on it, you yeah. buy it for three million, you put a lot of money into you know, restoring it, building it up, and then You're getting hit with this tax if you then turn around and try to sell that property for more. And I definitely heard from those kinds of developers a real fear that they were going to like lose the margin that is their profit and what they live on and, and that it will be hard to work in L.A. I spoke to one guy who does a lot of development in, on the West side, and he's like, I will be doing most of my work now in Ventura and Orange County. Well, I mean, uh-huh. We should check in with him after six months. Right. There was a bit of bluster in a comment like that. I think he his point was that people don't necessarily appreciate, yes, it's a $6 million property that I'm selling, but I don't make $6 million when I sell right, it. I had right, to, right. you know, I, I needed yeah. to hire laborers. I needed to hire architects to do all of that, that my margin is small. And this tax is my margin in some sense. So we have gone over
2: quite a bit here. So why don't we just get to our conversation with the mayor herself? We are here with Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass. Mayor Bass, we are so glad that you are uh, able to join us for this conversation.
0: Thank you, thank you, thank you.
2: So we wanted to start first with a, a pretty high level question for you. What do you believe the most significant problem the city faces is in how it approaches housing and homelessness?
0: Oh, I think the most significant problem the city faces is profound income inequality. How expensive it is to live in the city now. And then homelessness is just the most extreme manifestation. There's a lot of people who are not on the street who I would still consider homeless because there's three and four families are several individuals living somewhere and sharing sleeping space that are not intentional. It's not like they chose to be together. They're together because if they weren't together, they'd be on the street. So the difference between the haves and the have-nots to me is the fundamental problem, and homelessness is the most extreme manifestation.
2: You know, during the campaign, you talked a lot about how your relationships in Washington, D.C. and in Sacramento would help you address the city's housing and homelessness problems. You know, we're taping this interview the same day that Governor Newsom unveiled his proposed budget, $350 million less for housing than he had previously planned. And then there's the federal COVID relief dollars, which the city and state spent on homelessness solutions. That's now drying up. So now that there seems to be more scarcity on the horizon, what concretely do you expect from the federal and state governments? And how do you expect to make up for these declining revenues?
0: Well, first of all, not everything is money. But I will tell you that we did a call this morning, the largest cities in the state, the 13 mayors. We did a briefing call with the governor's staff about the budget, and they were very clear that the money for Home Key is still in place. A billion dollars is still in place. And so, yes, of course, we would always like to have more. But one of the cuts that they said they made was in resources for first-time homeowners. So, yes, we would have loved to have seen it all intact, But we were told, again, no paper exchanged, but we were told that the money for homelessness is still intact. And then in terms of DC, I'm very excited that the Biden administration has said that they want to reduce homelessness by 25% in two years. So immediately I picked up the phone and said, you wanna reduce homelessness by 25% in the nation? If you take care of LA, you can meet your goal in our city alone But if you address California as a whole, you can surpass your goal because we are the epicenter. And so I immediately contacted Ambassador Susan Rice because she's the head of the Domestic Policy Council. When the president has a big initiative like that, it falls in her court. And so she will be here in a few days because, again, this is the epicenter. Come here. But you left out one branch of government, the county. So today, the county is doing a declaration of emergency and we are working now hand in glove with the county. Now it's gonna take us a while to produce the results to scale, but we're getting everything in place right now. We did launch this program called Inside Safe, which is targeting encampments and moving people from tents to motel rooms and hotel rooms. When I established the state of emergency and put the city in a state of emergency and went to the emergency operations center, there is now county representation in the emergency center. So again, it's gonna take us a while to get to scale, but I do believe that the stars are aligning.
1: Just quickly on Governor Newsom, he's a former mayor. Mm -hmm. He's also someone who has not been shy about shading mayors for not being ambitious enough, for not doing enough. I can remember a lot of conversations with other members of that big 13, whether it was Mayor Licardo in San Jose or Mayor Steinberg, who sort of rolled their eyes at his kind of bromides about this. What have you made of his comments about cities needing to be more ambitious? Does it frustrate you? Is it something that you like or not
0: like? To be honest with you, I thought it was fine. You know, again, he made those before I was sworn in. And Ben, you know better than anybody, you heard me for one year say on day one, I would declare a state of emergency. And so I think on day three, he sent me a text. He was very excited about the step that I had made. I do think it's kind of sad that people were so impressed because it's like I said I was going to do it. And it's like people are impressed that I did what I said, which it's like, ooh, OK, low bar.
1: Well, it's a big crisis. And I think the thing I heard the most was if there was any shade you might have been throwing at your predecessor, it was uh, showing a sense of urgency. The next thing I want to talk about is something that joined you on the ballot this year, or last year's United to house LA. It's a huge pot of cash for the city and one that providers, members of your administration are really excited about for the benefit of the audio listener's Karen Bass is clapping right now. Uh, She's excited about it, I think. The measure is also sort of fairly prescribed. Obviously it's early days, but can you tell us what you see as its biggest opportunities and where exactly you're going to push people to spend the money?
0: What I'm excited about is that the money can be used to buy housing because that's what we're gonna need to do Ben. I mean, it's one thing to have motels to do master leasing The reality is, is that we need a constant supply. The difference between LA and New York, New York has more unhoused people, but they have less street unhoused. And that's because over the years, they have acquired thousands of units of temporary housing, not congregate shelters, but hotels. And so the fact that I I can purchase short-term subsidies for interim housing, which is exactly What we're doing now, and then building ADUs, accessory dwelling units. That's something that anybody can participate in if they are a homeowner. And we'll be able to use a chunk of the money for tenant protections. And you know, that's something that we're facing today, because if the COVID emergency goes away, so do the tenant protections. And so the city council has got to figure out how to pass new tenant protections. But here's what I'm worried about. I'm worried that the real estate community is definitely going to come at this full force. So in my opinion, we have to get everything we can out of it. It's the same way I feel about the administration. Who knows what's going to happen in 2025, especially with the way the electoral process is being distorted in different states.
2: So, Mayor Bess, I want to follow up on one thing you referenced. The city council is, is discussing the end of the COVID era eviction protections, which would come at the end of January, allowing evictions to resume for nonpayment of rent February 1st. Do you believe that that's the appropriate date when the protection should end?
0: Well, you know what? I would take the guidance from Dr. Ferreira. I'm hoping that it can end. But I also know it is essential that we have tenant protections, because if we don't, we are going to have a spike in homelessness, right? are putting things in place to house people, we are going to have an increase. And so that is just not acceptable. So we have to have the tenant protections. Now, I also believe in protecting the property owners, too. It's not just about the tenants, because we don't want them to default. Then you have two homeless people. You have the person that owns the building and the tenant. So we really have to provide support. I think with all
1: of this in mind, you mentioned your executive order, first day in office, you followed through on your promise, as you said. Inside SAFE, you've done several encampments. This is a citywide program to identify the most sort of problematic, challenging, to use your language. You know, both of these initiatives, plans, kind of speak to the urgency of the moment. That was so central to your campaign. With ULA, the money... In some respects, fits your goals. You referenced the rent subsidies for seniors, the tenant protections. But a lot of the money when it comes to the housing element is much more about the future. Right. And I guess what I'm wondering is how do you balance sort of the urgent needs you're conveying with your Mm -hmm. emergency
0: declaration with Inside Safe Mm -hmm. and the long-term challenges the city faces? The bottom line is you got to do both at the same time. And so what I believe is, is that the city is demanding the tents go away. That is the way every Angelino feels this crisis. For me, the tents represent the people who are suffering the most. And as a former emergency room person, I'm always gonna deal with the emergency that is facing us. But as a public health person, I also believe in addressing root causes, which means that you have to do the long-term building at the same time. That's why I've been We put the city in a state of emergency, but two or three days later, I did an executive directive so that we could fast track building. So what I like about ULA is that ULA is focused on different types of housing. So it is focused workforce housing. It's focused on affordable and it's focused on lower income. So it allows us to build the type of housing that we need or to renovate. Commercial properties, I mean, and that was one of the problems in HHH, right? Yeah. Is that HHH required new buildings.
2: And this is the bond measure, the billion-dollar bond measure that the city passed a decade ago.
0: Right, that everybody in the city is upset about because they found out that it costs to build an individual unit seven, eight $800,000. Well, one of the reasons for that was because of the bureaucratic process that delays everything. So my executive directive expedites that. We had a press conference at a property where they had been trying to build affordable housing for 14 years, and we were at their groundbreaking. That is insanity. Two thoughts I have
1: is a concern about having the funds to do the short-term aspect of it, but also so much of what people have been happy about with your emergency declaration has been this centralizing of authority, bringing the process of identifying a into your office, It was so ad hoc before. That was a function of many different things, the balkanization. But there is still a statutory authority that exists with city council members who have a lot of say over the siting of housing and the siting of homeless shelters in their districts. How do you want to see that work going forward as the spigot opens, as more building occurs?
0: So I will tell you that in the emergency executive directive, as well as the state of emergency, some of that authority... I've taken with the council's approval and support. I work in collaboration with the council. I don't have to work at odds with them. I might have the authority to do it unilaterally. I don't plan to use that authority. The way we are starting Inside Safe is we're going to the council members and we're saying this is an encampment that we know is very, very challenging in your district and we want to house these people and we're doing it together. Or they might say, well, you know what? We would prefer this one over here. Now, the goal is that we have insights, say, citywide at the same time. We're working in multiple areas at the same time. Well, we're not staffed or resourced yet for that, but we're putting it in place. And let me just give you an example. Different council offices have different needs. So, for example, in the 8th Council District in South L.A., Harris Dawson doesn't need our outreach teams. He has his own outreach teams. What he needs are motel rooms. So that's the way we'll work with them. But now it's not the mayor's office that's doing the outreach. It's existing community-based organizations and getting the resources to them and collaborating with the council, the supervisors, and anybody else in the area.
2: I want to follow up on this. Let's use your example, Mayor Bass. It took 14 years for a new affordable housing project to get built. You said that was insanity. Is there a point where if the council member in the district did not want that particular project to happen, sounds like you do want it to happen? I mean, you can foresee it in a situation where that could occur. Should you have the authority in the mayor's office to say, yes, this is happening, even if the council member says, I, you know, I don't like it?
0: You're asking a bigger question. And that question is, should the charter be changed? And I think that that should be examined through the charter reform process. And it's not a process I want to engage in this year. I think this year there'll be a lot of talk about charter reform, but I would imagine next year it will begin to be underway.
1: And just for the benefit of our our listeners, what we're talking about here is the city council, they have a lot of input, essentially, on what gets built when the building is over a certain number of units and We're sort of talking about whether that should be changed or not.
2: Mayor Bass. you talked a lot about how affordable housing should have a separate line in terms of getting approved by the city much faster than it is now and much faster than by extension market rate housing. So we're wondering, do you believe the city has a housing problem or do you think it has an affordable housing problem? In other words, do you think the city's construction of market rate housing helps or hurts the homelessness and housing affordability crises in the city?
0: I do think the city needs everything. You know, again, you're talking about the city as a whole. In some areas, there is a big need for market rate housing. In some areas, there's a need for affordable housing, especially in areas that have traditionally been inner city areas that are now being gentrified. And those people are being pushed out of their neighborhoods and they don't wanna be, they wanna stay there. So I do think the city needs all of the above. In terms of luxury housing, I've never understood who lives in all this luxury housing. And I do know that there's a high vacancy rate. Or put it this way, there's absentee owners, people who don't even live in the United States who own a lot of property here. And that's just hard considering all the people on the street. So the only type of housing I don't think we have a huge need for is luxury.
2: So we're going to move to what I'm sure is going to be the favorite part of this interview for you, Mayor Bass. And we're going to do a bit of a lightning round. So Uh what we're going to give, yes, (laughs) so we're going to give you a series of statements where you can only answer true or false, but we will allow you to add a few more words afterwards to explain your point of view. So I'll jump off with the first one here. Rent control is a necessary part of a functioning housing system in high cost cities like Los Angeles to protect tenants.
0: True. I mean, we have to have rent control. People are being priced out. And then, you know, some landlords are doing bad things, like we can't get rid of the tenants because of rent control, so I'm gonna let the building completely deteriorate so it becomes unlivable, and then they move. I've experienced that a lot as a member of Congress in resident constituent complaints.
1: The primary cause of homelessness is not mental health or drug abuse issues, nor is it poverty. Rather, the primary cause is the cost and availability of housing.
0: Yes, that's true. It is a stereotype to think that everybody that is unhoused has a mental health issue. There's a percentage that do. But let me just tell you something. If I was on the street long enough, I'd have a mental health or substance abuse issue too.
1: And there's ample number of studies that show that it gets worse as you stay on the street. Yeah. Too.
2: All right, let me jump to the next one. The construction of market rate homes in disadvantaged areas does not cause gentrification or displacement, but instead prevents it.
0: That's completely false. I'm sorry. I mean, the area that I lived in until a few weeks ago uh, in South L.A., there's no question. People who paid $150,000 for their home, if you put a market rate house next door, it's going to be close to a million dollars.
2: So explain a little more about how you believe that that drives gentrification and drives displacement.
0: Just say you want to move. You want to move to another house in the same neighborhood. You can't afford it if it's market rate. The other thing that happens is that you have people selling their homes. I understand that. I mean, the house I lived in, I got offers all the time. Cash, we'll give you cash money for your house. So I watched the elders in my neighborhood sell their homes, but then their kids couldn't come back to the neighborhood at all. But how do I tell them not to walk away with over a million dollars? You know what I mean?
1: This next one plays into this question. Proposition 13 is a necessary protection for homeowners who would otherwise pay too much in property taxes.
0: I think that that is true. But the problem with Prop 13, to me, is not the residential component. It's the commercial component. Voters didn't realize a couple things. Number one, they didn't realize that there was a carve out for commercial property. The other thing they didn't realize is that they changed the way the state passed a budget and it became two-thirds. They didn't know that was tucked in there. That was one of the reasons why the state of California was so dysfunctional. So fortunately, that piece of it was changed.
2: Okay, one more lightning round. This has been great question for you, Mayor Beth, and thanks for being game with this. The California Environmental Quality Act places too many barriers on affordable housing construction.
0: True. I mean, actually, let me qualify that by saying... I don't know if CEQA does. It's just that CEQA can be used to place barriers. Isn't that the same thing, though? But it's not anything in CEQA that says you can't build affordable housing. It's just a tool.
1: I mean, another way to ask that or something I'd be curious by is we've placed so many exemptions now on CEQA. Wouldn't we be better served reforming the bill, the law, in the sense that we have CEQA exemptions for shelters, we have CEQA exemptions for everything. Why not just make it easier to build?
0: I would agree with you, but here's the thing, is that if we were going to reform CEQA, we absolutely need the environmental community at the table. So you have to have everybody at the table because CEQA serves a very significant protection as well. But like a lot of things, it can be abused. I mean, I will tell you at Community Coalition in the early 90s, we used CEQA To block the building of liquor stores, the rebuilding of liquor stores, because we thought it was an environmental hazard. It wasn't environmental in the traditional sense, it was environmental in the sense that it contributed negatively to the neighborhood. So, and the interesting story there is that we learned about CEQA from land use attorneys on the West Side who basically (laughs) came to us and said, here's a tool that we use because we think our neighborhoods are overdeveloped. Mm -hmm. In your neighborhoods, your neighborhoods are not overdeveloped, but you have bad land uses. Mm -hmm. And they taught us how to use the tool. So, you know, again, like a lot of things, it has a purpose, but it can also be manipulated and misused.
1: The first time uh, Liam and I collaborated on a story, it was about a CEQA case about a homeless shelter in Venice on the west side for those exact reasons. Final question. We're going to circle back to something about ULA. Ever the news reporter, I want to try to make a little news here. We have seen several lawsuits challenging it recently. We don't know the adjudication of those yet, but do you think the city should be spending the proceeds for ULA even as the litigation goes forward? Yes. You know, in San, Fran- in San Francisco, <laughs> the money has been put in escrow waiting no. for the cases oh to my come God. out. Oh <laughs> God. Open the spigot.
0: Yes. We need to fight. But I do believe too that We have to get our act together because I feel if we can make a significant dent in the encampments, the citizens will be more inclined to defend and protect ULA.
2: Mayor Bass, this has been a great conversation. Is there anything you want to leave us with and leave our listeners with?
0: I'm so excited. I am extremely hopeful. I'm finding out all kinds of things that we can do differently, things that we can change. I'm finding things that I thought were federal regulations that were actually imposed by us that can be set aside. More to come. I'm happy to share more of that later as we learn more specifically. But I think we're going to be able to make some headway. I really do.
1: Thank you, Mayor Bass. Stay dry in this rainy season, and we'll talk more soon.
2: Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and wherever else you listen to us. This is important so that new people can discover Gimme Shelter and learn about what's going on with housing in California. Special shout out this week to Ben Oreskes for co-hosting and co-producing this episode with me, Manuela. I hope you've been enjoying your well-deserved time off, and I'm looking forward to having you back for the next episode. We get engineering and editing support from Victor Figueroa. Victor, thank you, as always, for your great work. I am Liam Dillon with the LA Times, and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam.
1: And I'm Benareskes from the LA Times. My Twitter handle is B-O-R-E-S-K-E-S. Follow me. You won't find much of interest there, but I am on Twitter still. And thanks for having me, Liam.